Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, and Brian Murphy. Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff, Eric, and Brian with you here on Inauguration Day. It is a national holiday. Well, it's not really. I mean, nobody got, got off of the day for it, but, you know, hey... It's a, it's a day of celebration in the country. We are here to celebrate with you by talking about UCF sports here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Gentlemen, how are you today? Good, Jeffrey. I believe, wasn't there an animal? There's a national holiday for, for an animal. It's a National Penguin Day, so that's like a holiday. It's National Penguin Day? Penguins are, not, a, penguins are not native to America, though. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you are you a nationalist now? Or are I mean, you just a Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Does uh, that does that mean Danny DeVito could celebrate today as uh since he was the penguin in Batman 2? Oh, come on. Oh, all right. Good oh, gosh. <laughs> Wasn't it? Let's see. What what is it? What what do we have? Today is uh, so yeah, it's it is January 20th. You know what else it is? National DJ Day. Wow. So I we mean, can take that. Yeah. And then National I mean, Cheese Lovers Day. Big up to Daryl Mack. You know, he's going to do big things yeah. at, at uh, up in ODU. National, National Cheese Lover's Day. I like cheese. Cheese is good. So Yes. Wow, we've already gone way off the reservation on this show. All right, we've got a lot to talk about here on this. That's our, that's our tribute to our friend Trace Trilko, who is a, is, a big, is a big fan of these things, apparently. But uh, we're going to talk about football. We've got some little off-season moves for you. We've got a new wide receiver coach who's a familiar name to college football fans. Uh, we have an interview with a UCF legend, Chad Matola, maybe the greatest hitter in UCF history, UCF baseball history. And, of course, the hitting coach now for the Tampa Bay Rays, the defending American League champions. Uh, he spent some time with, uh, with you two fellas. And uh, plenty more. And this is the first of two shows we got this week because a little bit later, Eric and I were going to do our standalone volleyball show, our, our volleyball Woo, preview for 2021. We're going to have all kinds of previews coming at you here left and right um, in the next few weeks because the fall sports that are now, well, for this year, our spring sports are, <laughs> we're going to have to preview those, plus the spring sports. It's going to be wild. And we, we got, got one of the spring coaches, in fact, later in the show. Right. And uh, so, so we've got that. Uh, Brian Kanyeko is going to be with us here on the show as well. So um, there's a lot to talk about here on this show. But let's first talk about football. All right. Report. Foot, first, uh, first up, report from Football Scoop. And then later, Pete Thamel talked about it. UCF has not made an official announcement yet. But apparently, the new wide receiver coach is going to be Cody Burns, who comes from Auburn. 
He played at Auburn, then became a grad assistant and a coach at Auburn. Um, Daryl Wyatt's gone, and in comes uh, and in comes Cody Burns as the new um, wide receiver coach. If his name sounds familiar, it should. Uh, he actually played with Auburn not all that long ago. He played when Cam Newton was there. Uh, actually, won the national helped won a national championship there in 2011. Um, didn't really amount to much as a pro, and so went right into coaching. Um, so, uh, Cody takes over a wide receiver core that brings in some newcomers, notably Brandon Johnson, uh, who came, who's coming over from Tennessee as a graduate transfer, um, had five productive, you know, rather productive years at Tennessee, but is finishing up here, um, at UCF, but, uh, not a lot of production returning, um, you know, only 41% of the, uh, yardage, from 2020 is uh, coming back for UCF in the wide receiver core. And two thirds of that 40% is Jalen Robinson. So uh, there's going to be some work to do in the wide receiver core. Who would have thunk that after, after the good years that UCF had in the wide receiver core, but Murph, we will start with you. This wide receiver core is in need of a rebuild. Cody Burns is going to be at least partially in charge of it. Um, Talk about this move. What's the what's the uh, what's the reaction? I, I think it's you know it's it's well it's interesting for me because I remember when Cody Burns played at Auburn and he was a significant player for them and ended up catching a touchdown in the uh, yeah. uh, BCS championship game about a decade ago. It's a good football so player. Makes, so it makes me feel old, which is <laughs> which is always good. Um, but you know he's had a, he's he's worked with a lot of good players uh, like Derry. Slayton currently on the Giants. There's three guys off of Auburn's current receiving core who have declared for the NFL draft, and, and the likelihood that, that I'd say two of them get drafted. I mean, he's developed. He's been around to de- develop some some pro talent, and you know, and it shows you that he can get the most out of some good players. So with UCF's receiving core now being pretty new, and even if even in the returning guys like Ryan O'Keefe, like yeah, Ryan O'Keefe is is like one of the more experienced players, but it really was only he really really had like one season to show what he can do. Like before then, he was kind of a spot a spot guy. And the same with Amari Johnson, who really hasn't had a, a full time role to shine and, and yeah. show what he can do. And he played it out of the slot a, a lot, uh, mostly out of the once the injury to Trey Nixon happened, he stepped up. He had, he had to step up. So once that true, happened, yeah. he really he played a lot of snaps on the offensive side. A member scored a touchdown at Houston. Uh, back, you know, back in his home state of Texas, uh, uh, made some pretty dynamic plays. But again, a guy who's really only had one year really show what he can do. And and then, you know, other than Jalen Robinson uh, and and maybe O'Keefe, like no one, no one here, no one here in this receiving core has had more than one year to really show what they can do. So uh, it's going to be pretty green for Cody Burns to come in here and develop these guys, and even to get the most out of Brandon Johnson. Who, yeah, he's a he's a fifth year guy, but. You know, working in this new, working in a new system for him. Uh, you know, it's going to be upon Cody to help him with the acclimation process. So, yeah. um, you know, look, coaches always get too much credit when things are going well, and 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 uh, you know, and and too much blame when things are going or not enough credit when things are going well, and too much blame when things are going poorly. So I don't know what to say yet. Well, you know, once the season starts and if the wide receivers are playing well, I hope people understand that some of that is probably due to Cody Burns. Yeah. It's, you're right. The one part about that that, did, that 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 I did look at was, you know, you were right on the money. It did make me feel old. The other thing that we wanted to 
kind of mentioned and touch upon too is like you know now we're starting to see this roster take shape Murph right and the, the and, and by the way thanks to Luke Saris who on Black and Gold Banneret does have a, uh, a a transfer portal tracker that we put up there so make sure you check that out when you can but um, the, uh, as far as you know how this is how everything is sort of coming together what are you seeing from uh, you, you know, guys leaving, guys sticking around, more importantly, I think, that was expected, unexpected, at least at this point. We actually got word um, this week also that Jakaius Cradle is uh, leaving to go back home to Georgia. He will actually play at Georgia State. Um, you know, unfortunately, because he came in so, you know, highly touted, a big target, um, had a couple of opportunities. I think, you know, of course, we remember the U.S. Uh, called for an offensive targeting call. Uh, in a game earlier this year that was pretty controversial. But um, you know, what are you seeing in terms of how the roster is shaking up as we move toward the spring? And what are some of the areas of concern that you have right now? Well, I think the one thing with, with Jakaius is him leaving. Uh, you, you would like to see UCF create, you know, get bigger, bigger wide receiver. And I'm sure that's part of the reason why they've got Brandon Johnson, because he's a big thick body at six foot two over 200 pounds because they need that size in yeah. that core you look at the guys they exactly have, the same size as marlin right uh, well marlin i believe was shorter than six two i don't believe marlin was six two um but regardless no yeah no i'm thinking in my head like he couldn't have been six two um but they, they really don't have a lot of size in that receiving core like deontay marks to six two and then everyone else is six foot or, or shorter and you know, Ryan, Ryan O'Keefe's 5'10", Jalen Johnson's 5'9". Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, they needed somebody like that. And so that, and with Jakaius leaving uh, and going back to his home state, it really just sort of accentuates the need for a big body, which, again, I'm sure that's one of the reasons why they went out and got a guy like Brandon Johnson. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sure that was definitely on their minds. They knew that Jakaius was leaving when they made that when they made that addition. So, um, but they're going to need someone else to step up there because, you know, or maybe maybe you could possibly see. I know we got teased it this season. Maybe maybe this means that we'll see more out of the tight end position, and you know, and the big the big bodies they have there, with Jake Hescott coming back and Zach Marsh Wojan, and uh, those guys are huge. But we didn't really get to see them use as offensive weapons at all. Maybe that happens more, to, you know, because you need those targets to bail out your quarterback, and Yusef doesn't really have those guys who are proven right now. Um, you know, Trey Nixon was a big guy. Jacob Harris was six foot five. He yeah. lost a lot of size. So he lost a lot of size in that receiving core. So, um, you know, but uh, I will say, Jeff, uh, you know, the, the the thing that I forgot to mention on last week's show, but I wanted to mention here because we're talking about guys who are coming and going. So we knew that uh, at least of, of, of a few of the players who were coming back for their for their added year of eligibility uh, in this in this COVID season, everyone gets an extra year. We knew that Jake Hescock was coming back because he told us that. We knew that uh, Noah Hancock um, and uh, the another defensive uh, lineman who name escapes me, God darn it, uh, at the moment. Uh, uh, Kalia well, Davis. Kalia Davis came back. We knew about Kalia Davis as well, but uh, uh, yeah, that's true. Kalia Davis to Noah Hancock uh, were coming back. Uh, we knew that because Shane Burnham had told us that. Uh, and But it was also interesting to find out last week about two offensive linemen coming back. Josh McMullen, offensive tackle, who's sort of been in and out of the line lineup is dealt with injuries and then also marcus tatum the grad transfer from tennessee last year uh is coming back as well and so really if you look at this you have offensive line 
it's really basically all intact coming back for next season. I mean, you're basically going to have anybody who played uh, really substantial minutes uh, of consequence, any any large minutes of consequence, they're all back for next season. And that sort of you know that sort of cohesiveness, we, you know, they talked we talked about it early in the year. That's one of the reasons that, that why they were committing so many penalties early on. And so maybe with that, you just have an offense that runs smoother, flows. You're able to run your up-tempo offense more because those guys have been around each other now for going on two years. They're more in sync together. Can, can I emphasize that, too? Because I think it's such a great point. Back in 2016, Scott Frost's first year, I mean, in 15, the offensive line was a, total, was, was a catastrophe in, in, in any way, shape, manner, or form you look at it. Um, 2016... It, you could see it getting better. There was more talent on the offensive line, but they were still all very raw. And so, you know, we saw a lot of instances where, you know, Mackenzie Milton as a freshman was running around like a chicken with his head cut off because, um, you, you know, missed assignments, missed blocks, whatever. I mean, it's just an inexperienced offensive line. But that next year, in 2017, everyone came back on the offensive line, and look what happened. That, that you know, for a good two years, that was the best offensive line in the American and one of the best offensive lines in the country. So are we going to see a repeat of that? Boy, I hope so. I mean, it certainly beats the alternative, doesn't it? Well, then certainly. And then also you have to talk about like, do you have the running backs available to make that, you know, to make those, that offensive line look good. Like, you know, the, yeah. if the holes are there, that's great. But if you don't have the right backs to hit them and me and Eric have talked about this on the show before, like we went through it last week uh, with, with the guys who were leaving and, and, you know, do they have enough with Bentavious Thompson and, uh, Demarius Good, Johnny Richardson, Anthony Williams, the freshman out of Orlando, like, you know, R.J. Harvey, are those guys going to be good enough to make that offensive line look as good as it might? Uh, we don't know yet. And so, yeah, this offense has a lot of questions, which we really haven't had to answer many questions on the offense for uh, a couple of years. Interesting that it's the skill positions where the question marks lay now mm-hmm. with UCF rather than the offensive line. Usually it's the last few years, UCF has been blessed with some amazing talent at the skill positions, but there's where the unanswered question is. By the way, Marlon Williams, you're right. Murph is six feet tall. I, I, I could have sworn he was taller than that, just the way he played. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, he does play because he's so, again, you saw that stat from uh, Pro Football Focus this week. They, they Pro Football Focus ranked their top 100 players in college football this past season, and Dylan Gabriel and Marlon Williams were both in the top 100. And I believe it said that Marlon Williams led the FBS in tackles broken as a wide receiver. He had more than 20 tackles broken as a wide receiver. He just he, he plays so much bigger of a guy who's six foot six foot. Yeah. And it, it just again, he reminds me so much of Debo Samuel um, when I see him play. Just he's 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 like a Debo clone. Uh, you know, Debo's little uh, Debo again is a little bit more. Uh, they use him in like end rounds and running packages, and we haven't even seen used to have used Marlon in that way, but. I don't think that doesn't mean he couldn't do it. I, I just I, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Marlon does at the next level because with you know no matter that his size, you know he his play belies his size. He does not play like a guy who's six foot. Yeah, I always I always saw him ever since he was a freshman. I kind of viewed him I as a a power tailback playing wide receiver to me. That's that's kind of yeah. how I always viewed him. That's just because that size at six feet tall, two fifteen. I can't. You're right. I can't wait till he gets to the next level. All right, so. Things are starting to come together for the UCF roster for 2021. Uh, and, you know, again, we should see a little bit more pulled together by the time spring practice. Do we have any idea on spring practice, by the way, Murph? Uh, 
Oh no 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 no. Yeah, we're uh, no, not no. even close. I mean, not, I mean, we we still haven't hit second uh, second uh, signing day, Jeffrey. That's in a couple of weeks. Hmm. Yeah, well, who cares about that? The real well, signing no, but I, I, I will say, I will say. I mean, as much as I've enjoyed like breaking down this roster, it's probably going to look different in about a few months. I will caution. Yeah. This will not. This is not going to be the. Well, yeah. I mean, we're we're going to have. I mean, this the transfer portal, and there's no there's no deadline on transfers, right? It's it's not like free agency. So, you know, you can or or it's not like there's a trade deadline. So you can you can have you can add people on via the transfer portal all the way up till the beginning of the season and during the season if need be. It's just a question of whether you can get them eligible. I think that's the real question. So I think certainly guys will leave, but I think certainly you have. Will add players even if guys don't leave. I think they have more spots available. Uh, I, I believe they had more than one when they added Brandon Johnson. So I think UCF is going to add a, uh, add a player or two as well before anybody leaves. If anyone else leaves, so yeah, this this roster is going to look different. We'll talk about some other guys who will join when they join. But I do think you'll have somebody new to talk about before spring ball practice starts. Yep, it's going to be a it's a whole different way of doing business in recruiting now. It's uh, and it's. It's interesting because it, it allows it allows coaches a lot more flexibility and it allows the players a lot more flexibility. I think that's that's not a bad thing. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, our big interview, Chad Matola, UCF legend from baseball. Baseball, Murph, some baseball. I know, I know. We can almost hear the pings happening now, Brian Murphy. And we're going to talk with uh, Chad Matola, who's now the hitting coach, of course, for the defending American League champion, Tampa Bay Rays about his days at UCF and a lot more when we return. This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, Brian Murphy with you. It's time to talk some baseball. We got a big interview this week. You two guys were able to pull together um, a, a, a interview that we were looking forward to for quite some time with UCF baseball. Great. Chad Matola, um, highest draft pick ever at UCF, longtime minor league player, was an outstanding player in the minors, had, had a few cups of coffee in the majors, and uh, went into coaching and is now the hitting coach for the Tampa Bay Rays. And um, Eric, I'll start with you on this one. This is, we've been looking forward to this for a long time. And, you know, and I know Murph and Eric, you both have talked to Chad before in the past, but to sit down with him, this was, this was a real treat. It really is. It's a lot of fun. This is something that you will all be also be able to see on our YouTube page. Uh, Murph's going to write a little bit about Chad and the baseball. I know Murph getting back to the baseball writing a little bit, but Chad Mitchell has had a, obviously had a memorable career, unique career, obviously helping the Tampa Bay Rays get to the World Series this October, representing UCF. But it's been a fascinating journey for Chad Matola to get there. As you mentioned, Jeff, the highest draft pick in UCF baseball history, played a long time in the minors, as we'll talk about. And, of course, his journey to coaching, which has been very fascinating. But you mentioned he's one of the greats to wear the black and gold, played from 90-92. We also talked about that and much more. Here now, Chad Matola on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And joining us now here on the Black and Gold Banneret, he is a UCF Hall of Famer, uh, of course, part of the Tampa Bay Rays coaching staff, hitting coach of the American League champion Tampa Bay Rays. I speak of Chad Matola, who joins us here on Black and Gold Banneret. Uh, how you doing? Great. Great to be here. Uh, hopefully, we'll be in spring training soon, but it's one of these things. It's always great to represent UCF and come back home and still live in Orlando. So it's a, it's a, it's an honor to be here. What, what has it been like? Have you had a chance to reflect 
on what you and the Rays obviously did getting to the World Series. I know it was such a unique season uh, and, and that brought it, but yet to be in the World Series and, you know, we were covering it from a UCF angle throughout the run because you obviously made it uh, as a coach there joining there. Drew Butera is the only UCF alums to be a part of the World Series. Have you had a chance to reflect on the run? I mean, mentally fatiguing for sure. It wasn't just the baseball side. It was the unique experiences of staying in the hotels, being away from everybody, being away from family the last month and a half, uh, not being able to see them, eating out of a box, literally every meal, uh, throwing away all the paper plates. So it was a struggle to make it through. It was a compliment to all the guys that they were going through the protocols and actually just life outside of baseball was so tough. So it was one of those things that you reflect back and just realize like, wow, we did the World Series, but not only did we make it to the World Series, we made it through the season, which there was plenty of times where we didn't think that was going to happen. How just, I guess, surreal would be the word I would use to like, you're in, like, let's say game four of that World Series is absolutely crazy. And you had to be sitting in that dugout thinking like, I can't imagine what the stadium would be like if we were like in Tampa right now, which you would have been uh, for if you guys were, you know, the visiting team, you know, the, the lower seed you know, what the same would have been like for that kind of game. Was it surreal to sort of go through a World Series with, you know, limited fans and in a neutral site setting? I mean, we became so accustomed to it. It was so nice to have fans in the stands, period. That was the first series that we had any fans at all. I think they said it was 12,500. It sure seemed like a lot more than that. I don't know if they uh, stretched a little bit or followed everything perfectly, but it was, that was plenty. I mean, for what we went through, we experienced the year before at the TROP in the games against the Astros. And it was amazing because unfortunately, sometimes at the TROP, we're the home team, but the Yankees and Red Sox draw better. So it was the first time during the playoffs that we literally had 95% fans cheering for us. And it was something special. So it really would have been crazy for that to happen at home, but I don't think I could have felt any different. Like the amazing play that happened, even if there was nobody there or a hundred thousand people cheering us on, I, the craziness that ensued in that game and the Mikey Brasso Homer against Chapman, just the way that all came together. There, there was two experiences in life that completely different. I can't tell you which one was more special, but they just got there in different ways that I mean, I've been in pro baseball 29 years and nothing has approached those two moments to have them both in the same season. And then guys want to say, well, I wonder if this is a little different, a little tainted uh, title for the Dodgers. No way. I mean, it was just everything that happened was so special and didn't take anything away from the season that we put together. What was it like, you know, going through the postseason, you're, you know, you hosted Toronto in the opening round, but then you had to go to California. I mean, this is, this is a postseason that's going to be documented. It's going to be written, you know, documentaries and books are going to be written about when you take, you look back 10, 20 years ago, what was it like to be in California in such a unique setting? You played the Yankees, then the Astros classic series, both of them going to distance, then the world series in Texas. Like this is neutral field. It's not what, I mean, I know you've always thought about the World Series, but you you figured it would be either at home or on the road, not in like a unique neutral settings. What was it like? <laughs> I mean, it was crazy because not only did we stay away from the uh, places, but we'd be quarantined. So each hotel, the one in San Diego is 45 minutes away from the field. The one in Texas was 45 minutes away from the field. So it was one of those things that your whole day literally was either on the bus going to and from the field. And it was, you know, you never had that feeling of, okay, we're ahead of this. We get to catch our breath. It was definitely eating on the run always. I mean, we 
they, the hotels did an amazing job of taking care of families, having all kinds of activities for the kids. So they made it as good as possible. But it, like I said, there was so much more going on other than baseball. Those guys had to literally just separate themselves from, and I know it was tough on me, especially for a month and a half being away from my family. The sacrifices the guys made, the hotel, uh, the sacrifices they made, it was so impressive just the way everything came together, all the employees respecting our space and kind of going through the protocols and staying away from their families as well. A lot of stuff that people didn't realize behind the scenes just to put it together. So I think that's why, I mean, I don't know if we've recovered yet. We're, we're two months, three months into the off season. It's one of these things that I've caught my breath, but I don't know if I'm ready to get back. And I'm hoping this vaccine really takes care of some things and makes brings back some normalcy for the fatiguing mental side, let alone the competition. I mean, you can tell from some of the superstars in the game that it was a struggle for him. You've been now the, the race hitting coach for a few years and we're with Toronto before that. Has coaching always been sort of a passion for you, something you knew you wanted to do at, at the major league level? I couldn't say it was the furthest thing from now. <laughs> I mean, all through my career, I don't want to say it was a struggle. I played for 16 years. It was a grind for sure, up and down the big leagues. And the one thing I said when I finished playing, I'm going to get away from this game. Like, I'm going to take a deep breath, and I'm looking forward to stepping away. Then reality set in the first off season, and I said, okay, now what am I going to do? <laughs> And I was fortunate enough to one of the guys in the Blue Jays organization uh, came to me that offseason and said, are you, gonna, are you done playing? I said, for sure. My body can't do it anymore. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a month, but I'm going to offer you a coaching position. And I kind of said, no chance. There's no way I'm going to get back in this game. And he said, I'll tell you what, think about it for a month. And uh, it's going to be kind of a no title. I just want to keep you around some of the older guys or younger guys that are in the big leagues, older as far as minor league guys. And I basically took that approach and thought about it for a month. And I said, well, I know this game. Let me try it out. And I didn't fall in love with it. Uh, just my struggles. I was able to relate to them, kind of being a fifth pick overall. So being the super prospect to kind of the six-year free agent bouncing around for nine years. So I think I had a good uh, – I could relate to all the different guys on the roster. And I know how hard this game is, and I'll never forget it. So I, I think that's part that I just – I don't want to say I enjoy their struggles, but I can empathize with them pretty good and, and relate to them and understand that, you know, no one's trying to fail. Like we're, we're all trying to get this. So I, I don't take it personal. Like some of my coaches did, like I was letting them down. How did you develop your philosophy then as you got into coaching, you know, did you have your own philosophies going into it? Did you kind of pick some brains of some people that influenced you? Just tell me through kind of how that philosophy developed here is, you know, you've got a lot of recognition now recently, you know, Travis Darno during the playoffs told the national, like that you're a big reason why he's had the success that he's had, for example, and other players have talked about that. I, I think the unfortunate part of being a journeyman and being a nine organizations, you kind of hear all different opinions and different ways to do things. And, Believe it or not, I saw some of the how not to treat people. For some, I learned the most from some of the people that were the worst organizations, unfortunately. I'm not going to name names or call out organizations, but it's one of those things that I didn't realize my last three years, uh, being 33, 34, 35 in, in AAA and kind of being through it all, I, I kind of mentored some of those young guys. So I guess I was kind of grooming myself to be a coach without even realizing so I didn't know I had a philosophy. Luckily, my first year, I 
uh, was in the GCL, which is short season, kind of bounced around a little bit, but I made a lot of mistakes. I still make mistakes, to be honest with you, you know, throughout the day, but I acknowledge it, but I made a ton back then, but these kids were all out of high school or Latin America or some older college guys. And they're so eager. They don't even realize that you, you said something different. So over time, I've had different ways of looking at the way I approach people, but it's just one of those things. I'm just myself and I want other people to be themselves. It's no secret sauce or something I have other than I expose myself and want you to kind of get a little bit naked with me too, to let's, let's fix these things. I'm on your side. Is there something as, as a hitting coach that you want to see more in the game offensively, something that uh, th this game is missing offensively that you, that you want to see more of, and maybe you try to preach to your guys. Well, I mean, everybody wants to see more contact, uh, obviously beating the shift a little more often. These are great in theory, but I also have to understand they're all throwing 100 miles per hour at the neck. And there's certain things that no one had to deal with before. So we're trying to do things to combat this. Everybody's a little I, I treat everybody in their own right. Uh, they all have their own way of beating the pitcher, but I, I'd love to tell you that I have this secret thing, this two strike approach that's uh, I'm keeping under my hat or using the whole field a little more often. I acknowledge these are things that have to we get better at, but it's not like it's that easy if I just come up with a philosophy that guys are going to start striking out less. I mean, we're all trying not to swing at a slider in the dirt. We're all trying to lay off that four seamer up. The easy thing for the commentators and the public is to say, well, why don't you just choke up and use the whole field? That, that That's our goal, believe me but it's just not that easy. The thing that impresses me about obviously what you're doing and, and, you know, Brian knows this, he's a diehard baseball, so he knows the ins and outs of the game. And, you know, for example, with your organization, there's a, there's a lot of constant turnover with guys get called up, guys get turned, you know, sent down guys, move on to other teams. You bring in new guys through free agency. That's life in major league baseball. And yet you got to get all, you use everybody. Like you, like you believe, obviously analytics has been well talked about, but you go matchups. Just how do you kind of, you have more information, more data, but you have more guys that are roles. I mean, Brett Phillips is a great example. We talked about that in game four. People are like, oh my goodness, what do you, but obviously you guys had, he came in, he was prepared. So take me through that approach. Cause you literally every guy in your roster has to be ready because their number literally could get called at any moment based on what the data says. Right. Yeah, it's not an easy job for a cashier or myself when a guy gets three hits and a couple home runs and then he's not in the lineup the next day. So you want the guys to be mad. You want them to understand that we're putting them in positions to succeed. You never want them to accept their role players. So it's one of those things that are like we want you to want to play and think we're not doing you justice and things like that. But our track record really helps. We, we, we're winning, which helps them understand our expression is, you know, usually say you're starting today and they always just say, no, uh, I'm not starting, but I'm playing. They're, they all know at some point they're going to enter the game. They all know that they're going to pick each other up. The buy-in is great. The turnover for me sometimes year to year personally hurts when I develop a relationship with a guy. We get to the point where, OK, can't wait till next year where we get to pick up where we left off. And then all of a sudden they're gone and then we turn over and, and, but our front office does an amazing job of finding these guys and putting them in roles to succeed that I don't want to say I'm numb to it because I love each guy that enters the door, but you just, everybody's kind of accepted. That's what's going to happen. So we treat everybody amazing when they're in the room and when they kind of graduate and move on, it's like, go get all your money and we'll always be in touch and anything you need, 
will be here. So uh, there's an understanding, you know, losing Charlie Morton, losing Blake Snell this offseason, th- there's no doubt that's crushing. But we also know we've done it every year and somehow we find a way. And the Brett Phillips is a great example. Brousseau is a great example. I mean, even Avi Garcia last year, who kind of came off a bad hip and then re- resurrected his career. It's it's when people come in the door here, it's like, okay, we know you're in, we have your interest at heart and we're going to do everything to get you in the best positions possible. Now, is it easy? No, by no means is it easy. And I tell guys, I want you to be mad when you're not playing. It's okay. Go ahead and yell at me, take it out on me. But when your number's called, you better be prepared because you're only going to suffer if you sit here and pout. Even I think the poster boy for that would even be Randy Rosarena, who had the most ridiculous postseason as a, ever, really. I mean, uh, just a quick synopsis of that. Like, what was it like to watch that as, as his coach, but also just as a fan? I would say it was more of a fan, believe it or not. It was one of those things. He had uh, COVID. We missed him in spring training. Uh, it was it, like six weeks of away from the world, uh, speaks a little bit of English because uh, from Cuba. So there's so many obstacles he overcame, enters, and all of a sudden it's just unconscious. Guys, another thing where you sit back and pinch yourself, like did he just hit another home run on the, the guy that we're not even touching? And he's hit him using all fields, uh, hitting fastballs, breaking balls. It didn't matter. I don't know if I've seen a stretch like that at any level, at any part of the year, let alone during the postseason in the last month. Uh, he's really set himself up for a, a lot of expectations going to the next season, for sure. Well, you've played uh, 16 years in pro ball. For those who don't know, and most of them in the minor leagues, for those who don't know, don't know, can you describe what it's like, the rigors of playing minor league baseball for, for that many years? I mean, I can't sit here and say and complain and and – with all my friends that are still out in the real world and I just haven't had a real world job, but uh, the, it's more for my wife uh, that had to travel and see all the different cracks of the world and the kids, my, you know, they're the ones that have it tough. Sure. It's, you get used to a cold shower, you get used to uh, eat and take out, you get used to it, but I got to play the game that I loved and I, I still haven't had a real world job as they like to say, and all my buddies let me know all the time. So uh, there's plenty of guys that I played with that, you know, along some point in their career, they're like, why are you still doing this grind in the minor leagues? And I, I just really genuinely didn't know any better. And I loved it. So they, they didn't really have to rip the uniform off. It was just time. It was too hard for me to prepare my body more than anything. It just wasn't fun anymore. So it was easy to step away. But now moving into coaching, I still get to compete and live through their competitions and, prepare them the way I feel like the ideal way to prepare is. So it's, it it was an easy transition, but the 16 years in the minor leagues, really you learn to take cold showers. You learn to eat cold field, cold food, uh, leftovers, and you just live at the ballpark. How is coach Matola different than Chad Matola, the player? Like if I put the two of you in the same room, how would that, would you guys get along? Would be on the same page? Would there be some clashes there? How, how are you changed uh, from a from your playing days to now as a coach? I, I would say I'm a lot more tolerant. I'm a lot more understanding. I kind of take other people's opinion a lot better now. <laughs> I think I was a little thick-headed, probably tough to be around at times. 
but I also approach, uh, appreciate the guy that acts that way. Uh, I don't want guys that listen to me and do everything I say. I want guys with a little bit of edge. I want guys that disagree with me. I want guys that have their own opinion, that have their own personality. Uh, I think I appreciate them a lot more, maybe because that's the way I was. So there's definitely a, kind of a graduation into a, a mature grown-up that I don't know if it was there as a player, but I believe in competition, you have to have that edge. So it's just as we all age, we kind of understand a little bit more, but the best competitors I've been around have been the meanest people to be around and I, I'm okay with that. So it's, it's, I don't have that edge anymore, but I still want to encourage other people to have that edge. Well, let's go back to the young Chad Matola being drafted fifth overall in 1992 by the Cincinnati Reds. What memories stick out to you from that day now, 30 years, almost 30 years on? Uh, how naive I was. Uh, it's definitely a business. Back then, you know, I, everybody gives me a hard time. Jeter went six, obviously. Hall of Fame changed the game in New York. It, it, I just feel like that was destiny. We both ended up where we were supposed to end up. There's no hard feelings at all. It's, it's kind of an honor now. After about 25 years, it turned into an honor. For about 20, the first 25, it was miserable hearing that every year. Hey, do you know that you were taken before? Yeah, I'm fully aware. But <laughs> I think just how innocent I was, how naive I was. Like, like, this is a business. People, lives depend on it. And there's a lot more going into it than just the game. I, that day, I thought it was, I was going to play a game, but soon realized I was getting into a business with a lot of money and people's lives at stake, which is the real world. But I, I don't think I realized that at the time. Has that helped you in that? throughout your journey, being a high draft pick, going through the minors, like relate to the players. Cause you've dealt with every single player you can imagine players that maybe are top prospects, have high expectations to the guy that's still maybe lacking that confidence. That's trying to find their game. Cause baseball is such a hard sport. It's a game of failure and people, and, 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 and so much of it is mental. You can lose your confidence so easily through going through what you went through. Has that helped you as far as a coach here? Cause you probably relate to almost every player on the roster imaginable. Absolutely. Uh, it was miserable to go through all those years of failure, but it, it's definitely helped me as a coach. The way to approach people, the way to understand the, the different times, the highs and the lows. I mean, there's nothing harder in my eyes of coaching than being a hitting coach because all the failure. I mean, there's there's failure right around the corner every night, basically. And I've accepted that I live the life of that. And it's, I don't mind being the whooping boy at times because I would rather you be mad at me than mad at yourself. There's plenty of nights that I stayed up trying to figure this game out. I realized now that you're never going to figure this game out. The more you just roll with it and learn to cope with the failures and accept them, the better off you are. Don't try to run from them. So it, it's definitely being around all the nine organizations, seeing all the philosophies, uh, seeing all the different players that got there different ways. I've played with a lot of good players, both in AAA and the big leagues, and just observing. And uh, it was miserable to bounce around organization to organization, but it helped me understand the way people work and the way this game is. There's no absolute one way to do it. But it still must also been an honor to, because you played in the international for so long and you played well, you were inducted in their Hall of Fame last year. Uh, that's That has to be still quite an honor. Yeah, it's turned into an honor. Like I said, all these years, they would rib me and give me a hard time of 
you know, it's just Jeter goes to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and I go to the Hall of Fame in the International League in the same season. It, it, it's one of these things that, yes, for sure, you look back now and, man, I, I played for, I think, 12 years in AAA, which it, that's unheard of nowadays, just to be able to survive and be that close and just still work. And, you know, I got my cup of coffee those different years just to number one, financially survive, but number two, just keep that carrot alive. Uh, but I hit a grand slam my second game in AAA and had a two run single. It was like two for four with six RBIs. And I was like, man, I'm in the big leagues next week. There's no doubt. So 12 years later, I was still in AAA after a couple cups of coffee, but I wouldn't trade it at all. Like I said, it was meant to be, and it's given me a great disposition where I'm at now for sure. We're speaking with Chad Matola here on the Black and Gold Bannerette. Tell us about how you ended up at UCF. You played from 90 to 92, obviously got drafted. That's how it set you up. But how did you end up at UCF? Because that's a unique story in itself. Because I believe, uh, as I understand it, you picked UCF over, say, place like New Orleans and things like uh, other schools like that, right? Yeah, I uh, was down in South Florida, went to a school at St. Thomas Aquinas in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, a couple what they call showcases now. There was just like one all-star game. I was approached by assistant coach at UCF. I had actually never heard of the school. Um, it came down to, I, I got a, like a couple limited offers from Florida, Florida State, Miami, just very partial scholarships, but it was FIU, UNO, UCF that all offered full scholarships. And at baseball, that's hard to do with a limited number of scholarships, obviously. So it narrowed it down to those three. My father and I drove up to UCF campus because at that time they didn't even have visits. UCF didn't. So we just took a ride up three mile, three hours north and fell in love with it. Um, it was kind of just far enough away from home. Uh, it was a very peaceful campus at the time, a lot quieter. And it, it made, obviously looking back, it was one of my best decisions in life. At the time, I was a 10th round pick at a high school and then end up, like I said, going in the first round. So I just grew so much at UCF, both as a person, both as a, a athlete, and just have nothing but pride every time everybody has UCF around the country. It, it, like going when we have fans, it's there's always a shout out in each city, uh, how spread out the alumni and how much more it's happening nowadays. When five years ago, when I first was coaching the Blue Jays, no one really acknowledged it. Now, every city, I kind of get a go nights, charge on, things like that from the stands, and it's pretty cool. Well, you were always a high average player, and then your power developed in your sophomore and junior seasons. And that junior season, obviously, it was very special being an All American. Can you describe that season, what that was like going in there as your junior year and, and having the type of year that you had? Yeah, I mean, I was a young college or young high school senior. I was 17, so I got to school at 17. I was not really mature, both physically, mentally. And my freshman year, I hit no home runs. <laughs> I heard about it a lot. And then I kind of went to Cape Cod that, oh, that was the following year. I'm getting them all mixed up. But I, I just basically physically grew. And I was so young that it just was a natural progression. I have a 15-year-old son right now who's about 6'1", 135, looks about like I did. So it just with age, I kind of put 10 to 15 pounds of weight slash muscle each year from my freshman to junior year at UCF. So that with that, the power came. 
but I, I was so young at the time that it, there was nothing there but freshman year, but it slapped singles the other way. Take me through that junior season, because that's really what got you noticed for the draft. And, and you know, you, you had a monster season. You hit 345, 14 home runs. Uh, you had seven triples. Uh, obviously, to you know, to the point where you had to go or declare, right? Because you knew that you were a high draft prospect. Take, take me through that process, because at that time, UCF baseball was still very young, especially in the Division I uh, standpoint. I think they had just made the NCAA tournament for the first time in Division I in 89. You come aboard, you put that, you know, had that monster career capped off of that great year, and you're probably all of a sudden, it's like, oh, shoot, like the scouts are interested in me. What was that like? It was a crazy whirlwind. Uh, when it all started, because I wasn't even on the map. There, you know, obviously they've done all these crazy things in the last 30 years that weren't around back then with a the perfect game and all the rankings and everything. But I really wasn't on the map even for, I was obviously had a chance to get drafted, but definitely not in the first round. And then we played the Royals in a spring training game. And we used wood bats. And I remember George Brett was there, uh, McFarland, and they all played about three innings. But we faced their 40-man pitching, and I got three hits, stole a base, and threw a guy out, all in this game. And that's kind of when it, all these guys started coming up to me after games, didn't realize, hey, you have a chance to go high. And then by the midseason, it was, okay, you're, you're going in the first round. And I, believe it or not, didn't even have an agent, which is unheard of now. But I went through the whole draft process without an agent. My dad went through everything. We negotiated literally all on our own. So like I said, it was, we were pretty naive at the time that everybody had your best interest at hand. And looking back, I probably could have used an agent, but it, it all happened so fast and kind of out of nowhere going into that year that at no point did we think the UCF guy was going to go fifth overall in the country. And it all came, like I said, it came together. Perfect. So does that then, because you knew that going into that season, then did you feel any pressure, any nerves, or was it just like, did you just kind of felt like, well, that can't, that's not going to possibly happen? You just yeah, that's, so, yeah, that's the way I viewed it. I remember at the beginning of the year, there's probably five scouts in the stands. By the end of the year, there's 40 scouts in the stands. Uh, my buddy Ty Lynch that we're still in touch with always says I got him drafted because he ended up playing one season uh, that year as well. Cause he was got to be seen by the scouts, but I was so innocent and naive that I never felt any pressure because I didn't think it was a reality. Uh, I just played the game hard. And next thing you know, like I said, there's like 50 scouts in the stand, but it, it was just like, well, I'm worried about the guy on the mound or I'm worried about, you know, the, the things I can control it. No point. Was there all this publication that's out there now and all these, Twitter world and all these things that everything's broadcasted. So it, it the, the pressures are completely different now than back then. Describe playing for Coach Bergman and what was it like and what was it like back then? Because there was no on-campus baseball stadium. What was it like? Well, we actually had the on-campus baseball stadium on the other side. Oh, okay. Uh, it was, yeah, I think where the pool is at now. But my three years, we had it. And then the first, my would have been my senior year was the first year they went back to Tinker. Uh, it was a graveyard. <laughs> the, the gaps were huge. It was a big triples park. But Bergie liked to have fun. He kept it loose. He was always, you know, very supportive. But the main thing I took away is he, he lets you enjoy yourself. Um, it wasn't like a, 
huge fundamental guys. Uh, but when it, when it came to play the game, he locked it in. But when we, when we were practicing, we were allowed to have fun and enjoy ourselves. What is your interaction, if, if any, with the, with the program these past, you know, 15 or 20 years, do you try to, you know, stay in touch, go back? Uh, I've been following Greg Lovelady's teams. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, you know, Lovelady and I keep in touch. He's had a couple guys come through the trop. So I'll see him when he has those guys come through the trop that he had at Miami or other places. There's a couple pitchers. So we went to lunch the other day. I, unfortunately, my time is so limited when I'm at home the couple months that I want to get back to the family and kind of uh, be normal, if that makes sense. I feel like my kids get robbed of me all the time. So I don't give back nearly as much as I want to or plan to. I went out and talked to the team last year, told them a couple of our philosophies. It, it was really enjoyable. And then to see them take off the way they took off, what was it, swept Auburn at Auburn? Is that what it was? Or That's right. Swept correct. them at, at Auburn. Yep. Yeah. It's really a shame that that season got shortened. And now I guess they got a good problem because now everybody's back plus some other guys, which I talked to Lovelady briefly about of how to keep guys happy and ways of rotating the lineups, just the realities of the job as well that he's going to have to deal with, which is a good problem. I always say when you have too many guys, it's, but it is stressful making out the lineup, keeping everybody up to speed and things like that. What is your thoughts on the facility since you've been back, uh, you know, and just the program overall under Coach Lovelady now and just seeing everything, how it's grown from the days where you were there? Yeah, from the shack that we had as a cage, <laughs> along with the uh, bubble that was a weight room uh, that had like two benches in it that we shared with the football team. These guys are pretty spoiled, but I'll tell you what, they earned it. Um, they're doing an amazing job. Every time I drive through campus alone, I get lost and can't believe it just can't, went from the wild pizza as the only place to eat on campus to all these things that they have now. It's like I said, it's just with tremendous pride every time I come back and go through the campus and see both the baseball, football, basketball, all the sports. And it, it makes it easier to brag to all these people. I wear my UCF national championship just to give everybody the ribbing and let them kind of have some fun with it. Um, it. It's really special, like I said, and the pride that I have and go throughout the country and talk to people about it all the time. Well, that's, uh, that's awesome. And uh, we wanted to thank you for joining us. My last question for you is you mentioned it briefly at the start, but uh, you know, in your heart of hearts, do you think this season starts on time in major league baseball? Cause I think it's one thing everybody's, Wondering about right now, the players, the owners, we don't know. What do you, you know, in your private moments, do you think that, uh, you know, because we're about a month out from spring training, pitchers and catchers, but do you think we're going to start on time? I think a lot has to come together, that's for sure. I mean, it, it's one of these things that I've learned finally with this whole COVID protocol and life, the, the stress that I had in spring training, both 1.0 and 2.0, that I can't do it to myself anymore. I can't try to guess. I can't try to figure this thing out. Obviously, this virus it has its own different mind and different ways it's been going about it. So I'm just going to roll with it. I think, unfortunately, MLB is taking that same attitude. That's what it feels like. But there's the energy that it took to 
get that season in last year, I don't know if people are ready to deal with it again. And I think that's why we haven't heard the announcements yet. We're all under the assumption we're going to be on time, but I just know a lot has to come together <laughs> in a month to make that happen. Well, that other people can figure that out. Brian is a diehard baseball. He lives day and night. So, you know, he's itching. He's itching, uh, Chad. That's, that's why he asked. He had to ask that question, you know. That, uh, I will say, I'm a, I'm, a, so I'm a diehard Yankees fan. My middle name is Munson, so I'm very much a Yankees fan. But to see the way that series ended with Brasso and the home run off of Chapman, very poetic. As a writer, I really enjoyed that poetic cap to that, uh, to that really, because of what happened the month before with them. It was, it was really kind of neat to see. Yeah, I mean, there were so many people in the game of baseball that reached out to me and Mikey Brasso, just the way that all came together. They have to make a movie about it. The way he handled it, the way the Yankees handled it wasn't the best. I think they acknowledged that. It was one of those things that, like, in life, you don't get revenge like that. It doesn't work out that way. It does, the storybook, just reality isn't supposed to play out that way. And I think enough Yankees fans acknowledge it. It's one of these things that I'll take with me the rest of my life. We, I guess in instructional ball, they played the video, the 10 pitch at bat over and over for a week. And you just don't, it doesn't get old. The feeling that of, of literally wanting to cry about it now, it's, it's the, the range of emotions of the Brousseau crying Homer to the Phillips, like what just happened? Like, I don't know if I'll ever experience that again in life. Well, there's a lot of great memories that uh, certainly baseball fans enjoyed and UCF fans enjoyed as they were rooting you on from afar uh, and really uh, were excited for you and the success you've had. Chad Matola here on Black and Gold Benaret. Thank you so much for taking the time from the busy schedule. I know it's, uh, you know, you're, you know, it's your time off. You're trying to get ready for the season, whatever that brings. But uh, on behalf of UCF fans and alums, we really congrats on the success you've had to this point. We wish you well, more success. And hopefully uh, once things get back to normal and, in a better place. Well, we'll see you at the ballpark more consistently up close. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. And it's, it's really an honor to be a UCF alumni and I, I brag about it all the time. So great catching up guys. That was Chad Matola joining us there. Thanks again to him uh, for joining us. What a career he had. I want to give a quick stats here before Murph kind of shares his thoughts. Uh, Matola hit 331 in 177 games at UCF scored 145 runs. 222 hits, 39 doubles, 20 triples. He's still among the uh, tied for the tops in program history. Was an All-American in his final year in 92, which we talked about in the in the up in the interview. Hit 345. And that's what kind of one of the things that jumped out at me. And you asked him about it. That final year, having that monster year, and all of a sudden those draft, you know, the, the scouts take notice, and that led him to being the high a first round draft pick. He talked about obviously the joke, you know, being drafted before Jeter, but uh that was an important year for him and, and, and really setting the records for UCF. And what I think was fascinating most for me in the interview is just his honesty yeah. about how he approached that season and then how he approached draft day and then coming out of draft day and how really yeah, he didn't understand really any of it, how he was at the center of a lot of hype and, you know, said like, you know, I didn't really think it was going to happen. I didn't really think it was real. I didn't think it seriously enough and so then when it did happen and he was drafted fifth overall uh he didn't realize he, he, he says in the interview he was naive he didn't really realize what he was getting into in terms of now it's no longer just me playing a game i'm, I'm a professional this is really a business now and i i, I really just I, I think that's a it was a really really um, amazing answer from him to really sort of you know just 
go back and reflect about how much he didn't know at that time. And I, I think that's something that people can understand when you talk about players who, oh, this guy was a bust, he wasn't very good, whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, sometimes he's, you know, you got to remember that when these, when these guys are drafted, and this is college baseball, he's probably 21 when he drafted, they're still kids. Like, you just, and, and so there's it's, it's hard for them to sort of you know, click into that mode of all of a sudden I'm a professional when, when the game has been when the game has been pretty easy for you at this at, you know for a long period of time and for Chad it kind of was because he was he was a high average hitter all throughout his career at UCF that you don't really realize that you have to do anything different and you just sort of take the game as it goes and and before it's, you know and then it's kind of too late and you don't realize how oh this isn't really this is different this is pro ball and this is I I, I love that I really thought it was it was kind of interesting to talk hear, to hear him talk about his naivete. Um, and then really how he sort of turned that into, you know, his part of his advice for coaching and how he coaches younger players. Yeah. I, I, a successful I, career in coaching because of it. It's just remarkable. And again, it's a successful career in the minor leagues. Again, a triple A, a triple A hall of famer. I mean, you don't play 16 years in the minor leagues for nothing. I mean, you have to understand, like you played a triple A for a long, long, long time. Uh, you have to be you have to be decent. You have to be good, like to do that. No one, like not anyone, just gets a spot on a AAA roster. So I know people don't look at that and and, and laud it because people don't really care about AAA baseball. And that's fine, but you have to be good for a long time to play that long in the minor leagues. And now he's a you know a hitting coach of a, a of an American League champion. And it's and it's so unusual to see a guy succeed at that level for so long because so many teams would just you know would. would how many guys do you see? They just give up on guys. They're like, you know what? You're just not a major league player. We're not gonna. We're not gonna. Do, we're not gonna spend any more time developing you. But he was able to stick around and and be serviceable. I mean, I saw him in Syracuse in 2006 when he was, I think, really at the peak of his uh, of his career. And mm-hmm. uh, and you know, you could tell. I mean, that this is a guy. You, I remember seeing him at that point, being like, why is this guy not in the majors? And it, and sometimes it's a numbers game, right, Murph? And you know, I'm sure he's had every manner of of scenario that he had to deal with. You know that that maybe kept him from getting more major league appearances. But you know, I think that also gave him an, a a true appreciation of how rare that that really is. As good as he was at UCF, that's it's it's just so hard to for any player to crack that barrier. Yeah, and a lot of it is just it's a lot of it is mental. You know, he talked a lot about that. So. Um, you know, and uh, how you handle yourself and are you ready for this next level? And do you know about everything that you are you aware of everything that comes with it? And, you know, Chad kind of admits that that he didn't know everything and wasn't really thinking about it. He just wanted to play ball. He's a ball player. Let's play ball. But it is it is different. And so um, I, I love that. And, uh, you know, we, we 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 you know, you heard him talk. I, I, you know, I asked him in the interview during the interview about does he think the season will start? And he, he said didn't know. But you know, right now we're. We're still on track, guys. Baseball seems to be like every other league, uh, you know, forcing its way to spring training. So <laughs> I'm just, Chad's- I'm just, I'm just proud of you, Murph. How you brought up the paint game five. You admitted you were a Yankee fan. You admitted you, you mentioned your middle name, and yet you, you, you know, it was a cool story that he shared, and, and you actually enjoy, you know, the the story with how he broke down being part of that game five against the Yankees. Yeah, I don't know if I, I think I might have mentioned my middle name off the uh, after interview when we were done recording but yeah i did and i told him i don't know if it, i don't know if i told him on the record but i did tell him like yeah i'm a yankees fan but the way that series ended with mike Rousseau 
hitting the home run off of Chapman, who had thrown up Rosario's head about a month ago, uh, to, you know, to win the series, knock out the Yankees. Like, you know, as a writer, you can't help but say, like, that is a fantastic story. It's an amazing story. So, if there's any way that I, that I could stomach the Yankees losing, it's on just a a, a sports writer's dream. Yeah, I'm glad and I wasn't part of a great that run, part of that. Part of it was a part of a great run. <laughs> part of a great run for him and, and helping guys like Mike helping guys, you know, being prepared, being prepared, whoever's the hitter. And he mentioned that no matter who's in the, on the roster, they got to be prepared to play. And that's what makes him, his job so tremendous is he usually literally uses the entire roster and has to get them ready. So I, I think he's done a phenomenal job with the race. When you consider uh, how they do things over there, it's not like they're buying out, you know, paying, you know, buying George Springer's of the world, like other teams like to do. So, uh, you know, he's Who would that be? <laughs> oh, you know, other other teams in the division. Real quick, Chad Matola to me, Mount Rushmore of UCF baseball, right? Would you agree with that? I mean, I think to me. Oh, yeah, he's on it. No doubt. Incredible playing career. What he's achieving right now in Major League Baseball is a, another aspect, a chapter layer to it. But it was cool to hear him talk about talking to the UCF baseball team and Greg Lovelady. And I thought that was fat. And it's really a credit to Greg Murph because Ben lively have said thing we've had all these UCF guys former UCF guys keep talking about how they're involved now and talking and, and staying in touch with the program and I think that's something that Greg has brought since he first arrived here yeah and and you know you know Chad talked about how he's he's had conversation with 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 Greg and and uh, about the program and everything and, and it's great to see that love lady has really tried to bring in as much of the old guard of the program as possible to show the success that this team has had. Eric, I believe Chad Matola is your third highest ranking yep. men's uh, baseball player on your top 100 men's uh, athletes of all time. You have history. I think he's at 13 overall. 14, 14 overall. 14th overall, matching the amount of home runs he hit at UCF. See, Matt Murph, middle <laughs> numbers game. Uh, love- yeah, you like that? I knew you love that. Yeah, I got him right behind Pope and Arnold because – Pope and Arnold was just tremendous from a pitching standpoint. But, yeah, I think he's the best offensive player. And the only reason why he doesn't have more re- a ton of records at UCF because he only played three seasons. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, imagine if he plays a fourth season like a lot of guys did. Uh, but, I mean, the high draft pick, I mean, fifth overall, who knows if when we'll get that at UCF baseball. That's not something that just happens, uh, especially in baseball, which is the the really the differences between one and, like, 150th pick is not that big. So yeah. – um, tremendous, and hopefully he gets that World Series ring some point, man. He's earned it. It was kind of a bummer two games away, but uh, it's kind of cool to see him here a couple, you know, in the state of Florida trying to help the Rays get back to the uh, World Series. So that was awesome. He's a great guy, low-key, on and off the air we were talking, cool guy. And uh, hopefully uh, down the road we'll be covering Rays games again and seeing them up close. Cool. All right. Thanks so much to Chad. Thanks to the folks at the Rays for yeah. helping us Thank out. Yeah, the Rays. They uh, they have been so good to us over the years too the 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 folks at the communications department for the Tampa Bay Rays and and uh, and we wanted to give big ups to them as well so all right let's take a quick break when we get when we return another interview we're gonna talk a little tennis and uh, we're gonna preview men's basketball uh, taking on SMU this week finally can UCF men's basketball get back on track we'll talk about that more when we return it's the Black and Gold Banneret podcast don't go away. All right, we're back. It's Jeff, Eric, and Brian, and uh, we got still got more to talk about. This is a big show. We got a lot going on here, so uh, let's flip back over to uh, as we get ready for our spring sports. By the way, preview coming up for 
all of our spring sports. Todd Dagenet, we just sat down with him, um, uh, UCF's head volleyball coach, and we did a preview interview with him this week. We're going to have that up a little bit later this week because we're going to do our own um, volleyball, all volleyball show. So if we're going, uh, so we're going to do that. I'm hoping we can do the same with uh, soccer as well. So. Um, we'll see how that goes with everything, and also baseball and softball, of course. Oh, a little baseball well. theme show, Murph. Yes. That's why Murph's not. Good. That's why Murph's not joining us for volleyball because he's just prepping for that volleyball uh, baseball. Yeah, he's locking show. himself up for. He's, he's locking himself in for baseball. But in addition to all that, listen. If you ask me, who might be the hottest prospected team, really, to make some noise in the uh, in the NCAA tournament, especially in a weird year like this? Take a look at your UCF tennis teams, folks, because this team, th- those teams could have had a shot to really get somewhere last year when the season ended, and they're just getting better. And we're going to start with the women's team first and their head coach, Brian Kinyeko. And uh, Eric, you talked to Brian. He's got some high expectations this year, doesn't he? Well, he has the, I mean, everybody has high expectations, not just him. I mean, women's team ranked 18th in the preseason poll, the highest ever for the program in the preseason rankings. And why not? After all, this is a program that's been on the rise. They were ranked, of course, made it to the Sweet 16 in 2019 and perhaps was on making the run in 2020. They had knocked off Baylor. They looked and got ranked 12th at one point. Seemed to have another year before, obviously, the season came to an uh, abrupt end. But now it's a new year. And with that comes high expectations, a program that he has taken to the uh, highest level. I asked him about that, about the expectations, and what's it like to be back in this current climate after being off for so long? Here now, Brian Kanyeko on the Black and Gold Bannerite Podcast. Well, Coach, uh, another season here is about to start. What has this been like for you and your program here since, obviously, last March? We all know what happened with the season being abru- uh, cut short abruptly. In fact, I'll never forget, uh, you were coming off that, your last match was a win over top 25 ranked Baylor, and you were on your way to having another monster year following up 2019. What has it been like for you from that point on to now here on the verge of uh, starting the spring season? Uh, it's been uh, it's been a lot. It's been a lot of emotions for uh, the players, uh, mostly. It's been uh, tough, to, to say the least. Um, you know, we like you said, we played a... We played one of our best matches of the season against Baylor to beat them at, at a tough place, and then to hear the news, um, and um, obviously it was a tough, uh, you know, three four weeks uh, for them after that, just to kind of figure out what's going to go on in life. But uh, I'm really pleased and happy with how everyone has has responded. Um, you know, we've had a, a majority of our team back on campus and training, and kind of looking forward to a new opportunity of a year. Um, I know a lot of them didn't start the year even though we were finishing pretty well, didn't start exactly how they wanted to. And um, I know they want to make the, the ship right and keep uh, UCF, uh, you know, keep getting better. So um, we're excited and uh, just trying to get ready. How big is it to have pretty much the core back from the team that's been successful, that's tasted the conference championships and the and the run to the Sweet 16 a couple of years ago and then the run you were having in 2020? How big is it to have that nucleus back as opposed to maybe having a young team and having to deal with the unique circumstances? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I've, I've never been more excited to have a, a second shot with the same group of, uh, of girls, you know. I mean, they uh, – they're great players and, um, you know, they want to be great. And, uh, last year, um, 
you know, it was a, it was a huge learning experience for them. You know, a lot of them, even though, um, you know, first time in college tennis and then experiencing pressure and big matches and, um, you know, to be honest, uh, and they'll tell you too, they probably didn't perform um, at, at their maximum capacity um, in some of the matches. And uh, I'm just really excited to have this group back and get a second shot at it. I know they want it, and I've already seen it. You know, I've seen it in practice. I see it in the look in their face of how they're um, ready to kind of learn from last year and do better and, uh, you know, understand how hard it is to win some of these matches and how hard it is to get to four points in college tennis against good teams. So, um, yeah, I think they're ready. You come in uh, preseason ranked 18th in the country, four singles players ranked, two doubles teams of yours ranked. Uh, you know, and I know I've talked to Coach Roddick about it. He doesn't like to focus on rankings, especially early on, because it's about what you do during the season and the rankings take care of itself. But that being said, from the outside of us, you know, for us, this was like a big deal, because especially with the program and, and the success you've had in recent years. Internally, how much of that do you even discuss with your players? Is How do you kind of uh, handle that? Yeah, I mean, hopefully the coaches just stay out of the way and don't mess it up, you know. No, I'm kidding. It's, you know, it's, um, you know, we, we've we've been in this position a little bit. Uh, we were in this position last year, too. And, uh, again, I mean, we, just because we're on paper, um, I mean, we still have to show up and we still have to, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's to win these matches. You know, it's just everybody is good. I, I don't care if you're ranked six in the country or 36. I mean, you can lose on any given day. And, um, and, and we've learned that, you know, we've learned that over this last couple seasons. And, um, you know, it's great to get that accomplishment because they work so hard. And I'm, you know, proud that we had a couple All-Americans last year for the first time in program history and um, because they deserve it. And it's nice to see the work you know, have a number next to it. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to act like the underdog at all times because uh, if you're not ready, you can lose to anybody. That's how um, fine the line is in college tennis. One of the players that you got back is your senior, Rebecca Stomar. How big was it to have her back? She's ranked 42nd in singles and I'm obviously sixth in the doubles with uh, Marie there. What What does it mean to have her back? You know, Rebecca, it's uh, it's a t it's uh, you know, we love Rebecca. I mean, she was, she was my first recruit at UCF, you know, so it's obviously that always holds a, a special place with you. Um, you know, somebody who came in and trusted the program when it was kind of at its lowest and uh, to come in and, you know, Rebecca had some injuries um, last season in December and January and was working hard to come back and kind of right when she was ready to be back, um, you know, we, we got shut down with season. And so for her to, to come back and decide to opt in to play one more year and end it right, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for her. Um, you know, she deserves it. She's been a, a true leader. She's evolved as a leader even from last year, and she's been doing the right things, and she's playing well, and I think we'll see some good, really good things on the court from her this year. Describe your roster for those who are not familiar. As I mentioned, you got four singles players ranked, two uh, doubles teams ranked. Uh, and what's unique about college tennis, for those that don't follow it, obviously it's a team event because you get points for singles wins and doubles. Just, But you've got a lot of depth and a lot of options. Just tell me, take us through the roster here and what people can expect here in 2021. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's the nice thing about um, – you know, about having depth on a team, you know, we have uh, a lot of options. Um, it's not like we have a, 
you know, a standout, this player is at this position or this player is that. Um, you know, each player is going to have to earn their stripes every week in practice and uh, get the opportunity to play. And, um, you know, it, it, it's nice for us because it allows us some, uh, some availability to, to mix up matchups against other teams um, and to put people in different positions because we're all in, in a very close level of the team. So, um, but, you know, it, it, and in a way it's really hard because, you know, we have, you know, probably nine, 10 really, really great players who all deserve to play. Um, but it's just such a competitive team. And, um, you know, for a, a tennis, which is such a individual sport, um, to teach the team that the goal is to have, you know, four points next to UCS name. That's the only thing that matters. Um, that's a really difficult message to keep sending across, you know, and, um, but, but they, I think they understand they want to win for each other. They want to win for UCF. And, um, you know, so, and, you know, at some point someone's not going to play, they're going to get other opportunities, but, um, you know, the goal is to get UCF to four and, and it's a team sport. And, uh, but they, I think they've understand that and I'm excited to see them, uh, you know, get it to work. You have a veteran group. You also have some new faces on the roster. How do you blend that in? I know you're not the only one dealing with that, but every team in the country has get, probably has a little more depth than they usually do because of the extra year eligibility. Maybe certain players come back, and, and then you have the, the the class you're bringing in. How do you mix that chemistry in, and who, and especially with some of the new faces? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we have – you know, early on in my career, we were always bringing in new players and trying to set a, a culture, you know, for this team. Um, so you're always um, really trying to teach these freshmen coming in of, of the culture of the program and stuff like that. And, you know, now that we've been here for four or five years, um, it, it's unique to see the, the seniors who have been there with us through this whole time um, kind of teach the culture for you, you know, and that's, that's when, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's it's getting in the right direction of how you want the program to be. That the that the players and the seniors and the leaders on the team can focus on how to lead the girls, and the coaches can just coach. Um, and that really, you know, takes a weight off of the coaches. And it kind of, you know, the freshmen come in and and they already know what's up. You know, they know how to practice, when to be, uh, you know, how to be on time, how to take care of their stuff. Um, not because they hear it from the coaches, but because they hear it from the older core of the team. And uh, that's what I think has helped the most, and it's helped our freshmen adjust quicker, I feel. How has recruiting uh, changed for you since, in particular, after the 2019 season, the match winning 24 matches, getting to the Sweet 16, the deepest in program history? Uh, have you noticed a change now with the, the, the as far as recruiting more people come wanting to come here? The, the brand name, uh, obviously, the facilities which we've talked about in the past, among uh, second to none. Uh, but how did 2019? How have you noticed the the, the, the impact that season in particular uh, has made now on future nights coming? Um, yeah, you know, it, it's definitely, it's definitely helped us get a foot in the door. I, I definitely will say that, you know, it's easier to, it's easier to validate, um, what you're selling, um, with a number put on your product. So that, that obviously, obviously helps the facility, um, that we have that it's, it's beautiful here. Um, that's always helped from day one. You know, that's the reason why we've had such great players come here and, uh, also the opportunity that they can have. Um, to play tennis at a really high level and even professionally, um, that's been really hard. But, you know, recruiting doesn't change. I mean, even though it helps you, uh, you know, validate a little bit of what you're doing, um, always the player uh, 
wants to know what you can do for them and how you can help their future. So that message is always the same and it's going to continue to be the same probably until, you know, doesn't matter what ranking we are, but you know, it does help validate and, but we still have to show them uh, how we can help and how their life will be better um, after UCF. And we truly believe that it will be. I remember we spoke when you arrived here in the vision you shared with Coach Roddick for the tennis program and turning this program into a national brand and, and the and the success. And obviously both of you have had success with the respective programs. But are you even, like, ahead of schedule? Because I remember when, you know, that was when people from the outside were like, man, tennis, that's a tough sport to turn around, but you both have been able to do it with your respective sports. Are you even ahead of schedule where you thought you would be when you first arrived here and shared that vision with Coach Roddick? Uh, yes, I would say yes. I mean, um, you know, and I think it was in our second year where we got to 21 in the country. And I think since then, I don't think we've moved out of the top 20 or 25, I believe. Um, so it, it got there quick, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to get there and it's, um, uh, it's another thing to keep staying there, you know, and, uh, you know, now our players, uh, have, have to, you know, put on the, uh, you know, the pressure of, 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 you know, having and earning the pressure to um, try to ele- keep elevating this program and enhancing it. You know, that's the goal. Um, I, I don't really think about that stuff. I mean, I just think about the, the new year and what can we do to keep enhancing what we have. Um, and hopefully it happens. But uh, like I said, I mean, there are so many great schools and great programs with good, good weather that, it's uh, it's hard, you know. the The line is very, very thin in college tennis um, to, you know, to be ranked four in the country or to be ranked twenty four. I mean, it, it literally comes down to a few points here and there. And um, you know, the tougher teams and the more prepared teams are the ones that can get that success, and that's what we try to preach. And yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, obviously, the men's teams ranked, the women's teams ranked. Do y'all like kind of? I mean, I know you take pride in that. Is there like between the two of you? Do you use that as motivation, and if you will, that both of you push each other? from a program standpoint to the de- next level uh, and, and maintaining that high level? Because I, I would imagine from a from a player standpoint, they notice what the men's doing. They notice what you're doing. Uh, I wonder sure. if there's any, like, chatter about that. Like, not necessarily, like, on a negative side, but more of a positive. Like, hey, look what they're doing. Let's both, like, kind of reach that level together. I, I for sure think that there is a little bit of that, um, you know, underneath everybody. Uh, I know that when we're on the road, um, you know, even last year, I think the boys were at Texas tech and we were at Panera or something. And, you know, we had, we had, uh, four, four of the girls had their fo- phones out with four courts going <laughs> because they were in, in all third sets and we were screaming and yelling at Panera for them to, to win, you know? So, um, I, I think it's, I, I think it's nice that we kind of had that timing where we came in together and both programs kind of, you know, uh, spurred up like that. I think it, it brought a lot of, um, cohesion between the, the two teams. I mean, they're very close to hang out with each other all the time. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I do think that they're pushing each other, but I think it more so we're all supportive and what can we do to help each program get to where they need to be. Tell me a little bit about your schedule, how you it came about making the schedule, especially in these unique times. What was it like? Was it any different than past years? And it's another challenging schedule. You've challenged your team once again with a tough schedule there. you got Florida coming in, obviously, you know, home and home with them. You've got Miami going to Texas scheduled to go there. And obviously we got the league, yep. which we'll talk about. You go to Oklahoma State and Oklahoma. Uh, just tell me about the yep. schedule. Yeah, you know, the schedule for – First of all, is the hardest year that we've had to deal with scheduling. I mean, the amount of 
you know, and we're going to continue to have the amount of matches that we have to move and, and protocols. And I mean, this is as hard as, as I've ever had to work on scheduling. Um, but, you know, again, like I just, I believe that our players deserve the opportunity to have as many um, quality opponents as possible. Um, you know, they, they work hard, they train hard to have, to have opportunities. And, and that's what, as coaches, we have to provide opportunities for our players um, to be successful. And, uh, you know, I try to schedule as many top 25, top 30 teams in the country as I can. Um, you know, obviously it helps our ranking, but it obviously more so than that, they deserve it. They deserve that shot. And, um, so yeah, we're going to continue to do it. And obviously we have a tough, you know, American conference, uh, you know, Tulsa and South Florida and SMU has a new coach. So there's going to be a lot of challenges in our conference as well. Yeah, and you don't waste time either. Like, you're playing Wake – you know, you got Wake Forest and Raleigh. Like, and I've noticed that from your scheduling. You're not a – you'll play anybody anywhere, won't you? Like, you, it, that, that, that's one of those things I've noticed. You guys are not going to duck anybody. You're, you're willing to play the best teams and wherever, and, 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 and it shows every year in your schedule. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's no better way to, to toughen up, especially some of our, you know, younger girls, freshmen who are coming into college tennis and – you know, to take them to Michigan in the cold and to play them in, a, in front of a couple hundred fans that are screaming and yelling against them. Um, I want to see that. You know, I, I want to see how they react. I want to see how they learn from that. We have to put them in these environments, um, you know, because when we get to the NCA and, you know, we get to these high-level uh, places, there's a lot of fans, there's a lot of pressure, and, and they have to learn to deal with it. So, yeah, we're going to, you know, sometimes it might not be the easiest place to come out of and win, um, but sometimes it's more valuable to put them in a really tough situation and see how they can get themselves out of it. Obviously, uh, as tennis fans, we've seen how the pros have handled the current climate, obviously with the majors and the protocols that they've had. I'm curious, from a college tennis standpoint, how much have they you've paid attention to what the pros have done? What have you paid attention to, obviously, what the fall sports have done? And just take us through that process as you learn. I would imagine... Uh, and I remember tennis, I figure it has one of the advantages from the standpoint of the sport not being very, you know, it's already a social distance sport for the most part. So I have to believe that that has to give you a, a confidence going in. Yep. Um, yeah, there's a, so many things that we had to think about. And we did. We, we tried to, you know, learn as much as we can from football from happening. Um, you know, the advantage that we have in tennis is that it is an outdoor sport. It is more social distancing. Um, the big disadvantage is that we have 11 players. And you know, they all pretty much live together, you know? So if you have one COVID case, you know, almost the whole team gets shut down where, you know, you have a team like football with a hundred players, right. you know, you might have, you know, 10 guys out, but 90 guys are still in. And that's where we're a little bit different because if we're without 25% of our team, then you almost can't play the match. Um, so we have to be smart in, in how we social distance and how many vans do we travel in. And, um, you know, because it's just, um, you know, it's just one player, you know, pops with a positive case. It really affects the whole team. And, and uh, you know, I, I feel really bad for our team. I tell them all the time. I mean, this is the hardest year, you know, that I will probably ever have in coaching. Um, and, and they just happen to be through it, you know, and I feel really bad for them. But I do think that uh, the sacrifice that they have to do to have a successful season um, will be maybe one of the most rewarding that they can ever look back on from any teams that we had. And um, even though it's, you know, pretty painful in the moment, um, 
I think it will mean that much more if we can if we can be smart and, and have a successful season. No question, no question, and it's just kind of navigating through it, and we've seen it all over in all sports uh, there. Uh, last question for you, and I appreciate you taking the time as you get set for the season. What's going to be the keys the, from your team and, and maybe things you're looking forward to finding now once you get on the court and play other teams? What's going to be some of the things you're looking for and keys for your team to have the internal success and accomplish your internal goals? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just want to find out of, you know, how, you know, in, in some of these tough moments of how how uh, badly that we want to try to make it through some of these tough moments. And, uh, you know, like I said, I think we, we learned a lot from last year, um, you know, in a lot of instances. And if you probably interviewed some of our players individually, they'll tell you that they could have done better. And um, And I'm just excited for them to put to work of what they've been talking about and what they've been showing us on the court. You know, I mean, we've had, we had um, all 11 girls miss Christmas this year to be here for season, you know, especially in, internationally. I mean, they came back here to, um, you know, to be with the team and to practice and to prepare themselves for this year. And uh, you don't, you don't see that too often. You know, I mean, the whole team missing Christmas. I mean, that is really hard to ask for as a coach and they did it. And, um, you know, so I'm just excited to see them put that sacrifice that they had to do and, and now, you know, go and make it count. Well, we're, we're excited that you get the opportunity, Coach, and we're going to be uh, wishing you well and uh, looking forward to seeing your team on the court here soon starting the season. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I know it's a busy time, but uh, uh, like I said, congrats on the success you've had to this point. We wish you uh, good luck this season, and uh, we hope to do this again down the road. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate your time. All right, and that was Coach there. I appreciate him for uh, taking some time with us. And thanks uh, to Kenny Landis, our sports information guru there at UCF, for setting it up uh, to help us get ready for this tennis season. It, we're going to have, by the way, Coach Roddick scheduled next week because the men get started next week. Uh, the women start this weekend. And uh, I'm going to write for Black and Gold Banner at a big project on the side on the rise of the tennis program, Jeff. And that's something you and I have talked about for years since – the rise of this program, where, where this program was when Danny White arrived at UCF, to where it is now, to where a point where you've got the, the women's team and the men's team in the top 20 in the country as legitimate contenders for the national title and conference championships. It's been one of the most underreported and, and fascinating stories, I think, of UCF athletics history. Yeah, and, and, and it, the fact that it's happened so quickly with both teams, and, you know, it, it's I've said this before that, um, you know, tennis as a sport, you know, especially for a school like UCF in Florida, good weather all the time. We know how um, how big tennis is, especially in you know Upper South Florida, like in Palm Beach and everything. Tennis was really underinvested in here at UCF for a long, long time, and it's just sort of the the confluence of a number of forces that have resulted in this resurgence like you were talking about Eric you know the opening of the USTA national campus UCF deciding to make that their home uh, uh you know their home for for tennis competition uh John Roddick uh coming in and being named not just the men's head coach but the director of tennis at UCF and how that's opened up recruiting he hires Brian Kanyeko and that program just takes off you know immediately and, you know, that's not to say that that's not to, you know, cast any aspersions on the men's team. You know, 
that team's been pretty good. They've had uh, and they have really stepped up the competition. I feel like over the last couple of years, they've really, yeah. um, you, you know, because of the step up in, you know, who they've played. Um, they've had a little bit. I think they've had a little bit more growing pains, but boy, we saw things really They're come together 16th for them this year. And yeah, paying off. They're and sixteenth. And I would not be surprised to see them get even better as time goes by too. Sure. So, so this is going to be. Uh, I think this is going to be a fun year for UCF tennis. I think Big it's going to be. Uh, you know, it's uh, man. I just can't wait to see what they're able well, to do when they think get about the court. this. And we mentioned it during the interview. Four singles players ranked, two doubles teams ranked, including senior Rebecca Stomar, who I mentioned came back, get the extra year, ranks forty second singles, ranks six in doubles alongside Marie uh, Mattel. They're one of the top doubles teams in the NCAA. Could be a national title contender in doubles, women's doubles. Uh, so this team is loaded. Zaleva. And, and, you know, you heard Brian talk about the depth, and that's what you know, it's a good problem to have. And uh, I think they're ready. They're, they're used to now dealing with the expectations. They don't duck anybody. Have you seen the schedule? They're going to open up with Wake Forest. And- <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany, Tiffany Roberts, the hate action, almost be jealous of that schedule. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> they, it is. Tiff would get that, by the way, Tiff would ter- certainly get that joke because we joke with her all the time about it, her, her, her insane schedule she puts together. Yeah, well, the women's tennis is pretty wild there. They got a wild home-and-home home with Florida this year on the schedule. You got Wake Forest, who's ranked in the top 25. They go to Texas. That's a power program at Georgia, which you covered. You've covered the Georgia yes. tennis program. Women's At Oklahoma State, at Oklahoma. <laughs> at FSU. Can I, keep, I can keep going. It's just insane. Um, by the way, the American Conference Championships, April 22nd to the 25th in Orlando at the USTA uh, National Campus. As they should be. What a great place to have a, have a conference tournament. Great place to have a national tournament, as we saw the last couple, yep. a, a couple years ago. So um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Um, let's switch gears over to hoops. And uh, don't, just check in on everything that's going on this week. You know, Because obviously with uh, the men's team, is, you know, boy, are they in a slide right now. Um, after that 3-1 start, they've now lost their last four. And... You know, we were talking about it after the last game against Houston where uh, UCF Murph on Sunday got boat raced in the first half and then in the second half actually made it pretty respectable, Uh, ended up losing by 17. But this is a team that just has not had time on the court together due to due to the pandemic and having to shut things down for a little bit because there were some positive covid tests. And uh, and and it's tough. You could see that they just have not been in sync together, have they? No, and, you know, they've not. And so, you know, if you add not being in sync and not practicing together with the fact that they don't really have a point guard at the moment, uh, it leads to some bad results. And we've seen that this offense is just, it's its not, it's hardly an offense at this point. They really can't get into good sets. Um, it's unfair, you know, really for Dre Fuller, who's taking on a lot of the point lead role, to be in that role because it's not his gig, um, you know, and there's, that's led to a lot of turnovers. They had 20 in that game against Houston. That's why that game got away. That's one reason why that game got out of hand really quickly on Sunday. Um, we, we, you know, we don't know the stats of Darius Perry. We hope he's, we, you know, we hope he's back for, for this game against SMU. But I think it's it's um, kind of shows you the, the difference between these two teams right now, UCF and, and, and SMU. UCF has one of the worst scoring offenses and one of the worst assist to turnover ratios in the nation right now. 
and certainly near the bottom of the American. But SMU, with point guard Kendrick Davis, who is averaging about 19 points and seven assists a game, uh, they're leading the league in scoring, and they're first in the league in assist-to-turnover ratio. Uh, it's just they, they they are running a good offense because they've got a guy who knows how to run it. And UCF doesn't really have that guy right now with, with Darius being out and with, with, with Tony Johnson being hurt. Um, it's just it's just the way it is. And so hopefully Darius can come back to this game. And if so, we might actually get to see more of what we, we've seen from this offense when things were going right. You know, th- again, against games like uh, Cincinnati. Um, but we don't know. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. Joy, you know, Johnny Dawkins was very coy about it, asked about it after the game against Houston and said there's test that he has to take and whatnot, you know, it, I'll just say this. It certainly sounds like he doesn't want to say a whole lot about the type of test that he has to take. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, you know, wary to go any further on that. It's just how, how it is this year. By the way, the American had three more games postponed today and they weren't, they weren't all, they weren't all supposed to play today, but games postponed for, for today and dates ahead. I believe the American has now had 12 games postponed in the past eight days. Wow. Yeah. There were four games scheduled. There were four games scheduled for tonight's calendar. Only one of them actually played. That was Houston at Tulsa. Um, so it's um look, this is what it is. You know, SMU hasn't played since uh, January 11th. I don't believe. I believe yeah, the last they've three had games. three games in a row postponed. Their last game, you're right, was uh, at home against Temple on the 11th. They won that game by 11 points. They were supposed to be at Memphis on the 14th, postponed. Home for Wichita on Sunday the 17th, postponed. They were supposed to play Tulane. We're recording this on Wednesday, January 20th. They're supposed to play in New Orleans against the Green Wave tonight. That got wiped. And so, the, you know, the Memphis game, the first one was due to a COVID uh, testing and contact tracing at SMU. The Memphis postponement, the, the Wichita State postponement was due to COVID at, at Wichita State. And the Tulane postponement was due to COVID at Tulane. Uh, it's, it, it's impacted every team. Cincinnati is in a really bad way right now. They've had games canceled left and right. There's a, there's a cancellations going on at USF right now because of contact tracing and positive cases with the Bulls program. We know that UCF has certainly had to deal with, with their, with their issues this year. Um, it, it's just, it is what it is. And right now UCF, um, is really trying to struggle and fight through it. You know, I, you know, I hate to say that because this isn't this isn't their fault. They didn't ask for this. They, yeah. they didn't. You know, they. This is, this is a pandemic, guys. But this is what they've been tasked to do, and um, we'll see. I think the big thing is can Darius Perry come back and make this offense look respectable? And you know, at least we know that this week they've gotten some practice time, as far as we know, because between the game against USF back on what was that December twenty sixth. And the game against Houston last Sunday, I believe this team had had all of about three practices. Well, so, USF was January 2nd, but yeah, okay. three practices since then? Yeah. They've yeah, had two so, games since then. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because so that they, they haven't been able to practice because of COVID. Yeah. So yeah, so from January 2nd to uh, like January 17th, they had basically three practices. And even in those practices, they haven't been able to go as a full team. They've been going in small groups. So it's... Um, it's disjointed. It's choppy. Um, but this is kind of what you knew this season was going to be like, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it, it just it's it stinks because of the promise of that start. Right. Where everything seemed to be coming together. And then Tony Johnson got hurt and then Darius got hurt. And, you know, it's man, you know, it's it's just going to be a lot of it's, it, there's going to be a lot of what ifs this year. And, and that's sure. that's not that's not exclusive to UCF. I get it. 
but you know, it's just a it, it's a bummer right now for you because we've seen like how good this team can be, and you're just hoping yeah. that they were able to pull it together again at some point so that we can see that again because that start was fun to see. I mean, it, it, and, it, this thing looked good. And they'll be tasked really hard this weekend against an SMU team that scores the ball really well. Four guys in the, on SMU with double figures, averaging points per game in double figures. They lead the league in points. Really could be maybe the second-best team in this conference. Maybe it's Wichita State. Certainly Houston's number one, and Houston's opened up a wide gap, I think, between them and, and whoever else. Destroyed is Tulsa on Wednesday night, 86-59 oh, yeah. at home. I mean, they I mean, took payback for that loss to, to Tulsa earlier in the year. It's too bad. There are like four teams that are, that could be the second-best team in this conference, but the gap between Houston and the rest of the field, I mean, they're lapping the rest of the field almost right now. SMU is in that group, maybe maybe, maybe at the head of that group. But right now, if the season ends today, this is a one-bid league. Yeah, and it's, and it's looking like Houston. And this is with – and by the way, can we also <laughs> mention just some, some additional props to Houston? This is with the preseason player of the year – having played, what, two games, and then decided, you know what, I'm out. I'm going to the transfer portal. And, yeah, and so he's gone to Florida State. Meanwhile, Quentin Grimes, if it's not Kendrick Davis being player of the year, Quentin Grimes for Houston, you know, the, the former McDonald's All-American, the former Kansas Jayhawk, he is looking like the player of the year. So it's, you know, it's, that you know, I mean, I know this is a, maybe a hard thing to wrap your head around, but if you get really good players, the odds are your team's going to be pretty good. Yeah. I don't know why Kelvin Sampson would have taken his tie off if he had to. If he had to, you know, I mean, you know, why would things go this way? now, man? Those days are gone, unfortunately. No oh, more, no tie. more, no more Kelvin, Kelvin tie bets. Oh boy, what are we gonna do? Um, on the women's side, uh, they're coming off two straight victories. Although they had their game against, uh, that was scheduled for tonight, January twentieth, at home against SMU. That game was canceled. Uh, their next opportunity is Saturday at Houston at the Fertitta Center, uh, and then they play ECU on Wednesday. By the way, Wednesday it's a I think it's a, it's a double dip UCF and ECU at home uh, on Wednesday uh, with the women followed by the men. But uh, right now UCF women's basketball is sitting pretty at uh, seven and two on the season, uh, and uh, even with the even with the wipeout of SMU on that schedule. Uh, UCF is looking in pretty good shape. They took it to Cincinnati at home, beat them by 16 points in what was a real revenge game, Eric Lopez, uh, after last year. And Cincinnati handing UCF a really tough loss in the American semis. Uh, UCF was primed and ready to, to for another another go at UConn. And Cincinnati all of a sudden popped up and said, never mind. Um, but in this game, boy, did UCF really teach them a lesson I thought especially with the defense once again they held them to single figures once again in two of the four quarters and Cincinnati as a team shot 14 for 49 28 percent this team's defense is just suffocating right now isn't it it is I mean it's top level and Diamond Battles even mentioned post game on the there that that they circled this game they remembered the the veterans remembered that semifinal loss that bad taste in their mouth and what turned out to be the final game of the 2020 season for them when they lost to Cincinnati in the semifinals and they were ready for this game they held Amari Thomas who was you know averaging 25 a game the preseason co-player of the year fourth in the country in scoring held her to like 13 points limited her touches they doubled her. They dominated the boards. They won by 11 rebounds. 
didn't uh, give up a second chance point until the end of the third quarter when the game was pretty much decided. So a uh, very dominant performance for them. I think Coach Abe was pleased. I think he's learning this team what they can and can do. Uh, and they've been dominant at home for the most part. Now they go on the road against Houston, who they played earlier this year at home. They beat them by, uh, at home. But Houston's coming off a blowout win over Temple uh, on Wednesday. Temple is the team that knocked off UCF. And, and me and Murph talked about this on our last episode. <laughs> UCF has to hold serve. You know, Currently, as yeah. of Wednesday night, their net ranking is 59. Really, their marquee win right now from a ranking standpoint is Tulane at 50, believe it or not. That So, you know, that like Virginia, who, by the way, just dropped out of playing this season, they're yeah. in the 200s. LSU is 90. You mentioned SMU. The reason why the SMU game got canceled is because SMU opted out of the season a few weeks back. So uh, they got to hold serve here and set up a showdown with South Florida, which will be on Super Bowl Sunday. And they got to probably beat South Florida. They're not only going to have to beat South Florida to win the league, but they're probably going to have to beat South Florida to get into the NCAA tournament because that's going to be the win that maybe gives them a chance to get into the field of 64, if it's 64. It's not 100% guarantee, by the way, that the women's tournament is going to be 64. It might drop to 48, apparently, depending on how things go. So um, it they got to they gotta hold serve. You know, the Temple lost things – from that standpoint, they got to be dominant. And this is a Houston team that's very good, very tricky, with a head coach that you and I know pretty well, Jeff. Obviously, the former assistant, Joey Williams, on, on, on the UCF staff. So this is a tricky game for them going on the road in, against Houston on Saturday. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that. And I did want to you know bring that up because you, know, you remember UCF beat Virginia in their opener at home by 26 points, nearly doubled them up to 60-34. to 34. And you're expecting Virginia's RPI to kind of boost as they as they would play more of their schedule in the ACC because the ACC is pretty strong. But Virginia just wiped out their whole season. They said we're done at this point. And so, like you said, that does hurt UCF in the uh, numerical rankings. So where do you make that up in terms of your your conference schedule? So uh, right now, like well, you said, this is where all you mathematic geeks that's oh, let's decide everything by numbers. This is where it's flawed because UCF did nothing wrong here. You scheduled Virginia and LSU. You're, you can't predict that Virginia's going to go 0 and 5 and call it a season. And all of a sudden, you're being punished for playing a team that's in rankings in the 200s when they're normally in the 80s. So uh, that's the negative with depending everything on numbers because this team is better than what the rankings show. But based on some of the opponents they're playing, they've been hurt by that. So yeah. we'll see. Well, I'm glad you brought up the USF the, the point for the USF game because right now South Florida is leading the conference at seven and zero. UCF right now is the only team with a one in the loss column, yep. uh, and they're uh, one ahead of Temple, who's having a pretty decent year in conference so far at four and two. Houston's five and three, Tulane five and three. So there's your lineup in the American at least as of right now. By the way, we you know and the real reason why. And I know I feel like I'm getting ahead. And Coach Abe, if she's listening, she'd be so mad at me right now because I'd be looking ahead from these games. But um, right now we're looking at the number four ranked scoring defense in the country in UCF. 50.6 points per game. And they're the 17th best field goal percentage defense in the country. They're holding opponents to barely under 34% from the field, which... When you think about it, it's really remarkable what they've been able to do. I mean, we talk, we love to, we always talk about 
you know what we need in terms of offense. But my God, this team is so good on defense. It's uh, it, they're really putting together a uh, a masterpiece right now on the defensive end of the floor. So I'm hoping that they that like you said, Eric, they hold serve to the point where you can see them hold serve, baby. Think about it. I envision this night shift post game following UCF USF women's basketball. You and me, Jeffrey, breaking down the game. We bring Murph during in. the Super Bowl. Are you kidding me? We're no, not before be the Super Bowl. The women's game's early. Tip. We got time. We got well. Time. I, well, we don't know. It's it's a TBA. I'm I'm, I'm hoping that it's at noon and not what do you like mean? three. What are you talking about? It's like nationally. Uh, believe it's at two o'clock. Is noon it two o'clock? Actually, or did they announce? Yeah, that? I don't know where. Yeah, where'd you get the TBA? Oh, from I was there? looking at I was looking at stats.ncaa.org. That's where I was looking. At. Uh, oh yeah, they do. Okay, okay. I tell you what, no one else will get this because it was off air. But this has not been a good night for Jeff and UCF numbers. <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> hasn't <laughs> been, man. It really, it's <laughs> been <laughs> bad. <laughs> it's it's been right. okay. I'm you're right. Yes, away new, from that, except to say it's a new ESPN two. New ESPN two. Women's basketball recap. Me and Jeff will bring Murph in to bring in some Super Bowl prop bets for the show. Hey, you know what? I mean, if Gabe Davis uh, and the Bills win this weekend, I'm all about it. By the way, Gabe Davis didn't practice this week. What? What? Didn't practice on on Wednesday, so uh, be be on the watch out for that. Be on the watch out for that. Uh, In the meantime, UCF in Houston on Saturday, 6 p.m. ESPN Plus on the uh, women's side. So be sure to uh, check that one out as well. So, By the way, ESPN Plus games, I've, I've been really interested, Eric, at how each school in the American runs their telecasts, and they're all kind of a little bit different, but they all, but they're all more or less local broadcasters who are doing these games. Yeah, Neil Salance is the men's analyst for USF, the Tampa Bay Rays pregame host. Yeah, uh, among others, and uh, so yeah, man, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool uh, to see the the league they're working on ESPN Plus, and I'll have the Houston game on. While I have the men's game on the uh, TV on yep. Saturday. In fact, I might just do a night shift after the both those games to recap the men and just, the women. Just by yourself? <laughs> well, I mean, Murph, it's... if you're welcome to join me after the post game there, I might have a special guest, actually. But... Uh, S- Saturday the 23rd, by the way, the men's team uh, at home against SMU. That's ESPNU. Yeah. That game. The Wednesday game against ECU is on, uh, is on ESPN+. Plus. That's on January 27th. All right. Uh, so that gives us that gives us the opportunity to kind of wrap this thing up, guys. Uh, what are you working on this week, uh, Brian? I'll start with you. Well, I, we'll see how UCF basketball can maybe piece itself together. That would be that would be great. Um, so I've really just been reacting to uh, to that game, and then as I sort of I guess preemptively or, or prematurely sort of <laughs> dropped in there, uh, following Game Davis's practice reports because like he didn't practice on Wednesday, and usually yeah, that- I, I wish. I wish the media – I mean, the media is so obsessed with that other guy's status, uh, the quarterback from the Chiefs. What's his name again? Mahomes? I don't know. I don't know. His dad was a baseball player. That's all I know. Yeah. Uh, so His dad's yeah, name was up. Pat Mahomes. I remember that. I don't know who his kid's name is then. Uh, the the uh, Gabe has an ankle injury. I believe he hurt the ankle uh, while stretching out for a an, uh, uh, pass in the end zone in, in last weekend's game against Baltimore and came up a little gimpy and I think worked through it, but – um, maybe there's giving him some rest, but we'll see how it goes. I would, you know, be great to see Gabe play this Sunday because he's the only guy that we got left. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, he's yeah, he's it in terms of UCF alumni in the playoffs. But uh, we got some good championship games this week. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Eric, what are you working on? 
Well, Morgan, as I mentioned earlier, this big tennis feature story that's going to come out next week, obviously on the rise of the tennis program from where it is to a top 25 program. An ELO uh, feature. Yeah. We're going to have some big guests on that art feature. Obviously, Coach Kanyeko, we had the interview on this episode. We're going to have Coach Roddick next week. And we have a special guest who's going to be probably quoted in that article. I'm not going to give it away right now. You're going to have to wait. Not, not an audio time. interview, right? No, it's a big-time guest uh, talking about the, the rise of the tennis program. It's not a tennis player. It's a pretty big feature. UCF fans okay. like him a lot, so I think you'll enjoy. So I'm looking at working on that uh, between now. Hopefully to have that out before the men's tennis pr- uh, season uh, opener next weekend. So uh, we'll be working on that and uh, got some volleyball to get ready for, uh, yes. uh, Jeffrey, right? We uh, just wrapped up our interview uh, just the other day with Todd Dagenet, our season preview interview with Todd. Um, which has, you know, I, first, I, mean, I love talking with Todd, especially in the preseason. And uh, and we had a fun interview with him here. Although we didn't get the chance to talk much about it on the wrestling side, did we, Eric? No, but, uh, you know, maybe for the best right now, there's nothing worth talking about in wrestling right now, to be honest. So we did talk, I did tell you, Murph, we talked about there's no, we have, we, let's not forget, Coach Dagenet is a diehard Packer fan. Yes. So. So oh, you no. do have that angle. We do have that angle. We do have that angle, Sunday. and but potentially if they beat the Bucks. But so, so we're going to be doing our own. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be doing our own volleyball preview show uh, this week as well. Uh, we're going to be meeting with some of the players tomorrow, which is going to be a lot of fun. Thursday for those Thursday. Yes. Yeah, yes, Thursday. Thursday, yes. So because we're recording this on Wednesday, January twentieth, which I always Murph put the gets show to miss now. that episode. We've all missed episodes in the last few weeks, Murph. It just so happens your turn is the volleyball episode. I don't know what to say. I don't know. Yeah, that's... you're miss. You're missing out, is what you have to say. I mean, that's that's, that's just the fact. That's why we didn't talk wrestling. We can't talk wrestling with Dajie without no. Murph. You know, just <laughs> listen. We're, listen. I okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna bend to your guys' will this this summer. Okay, we're gonna have to have some. Maybe we'll do like a something because we can't do WrestleMania because the season's going on. Maybe we'll do something for SummerSlam. We'll heck, we'll get Love Lady in here. We'll get. We'll get Todd in, Murph. Oh. I don't know. Maybe let's we'll... just hope. Let's just hope the product is decent enough to the point where let's, we can actually let's... talk about it because that's pretty bad right now. Honestly, in all honestly, I didn't even want to. Talk when was about the, it. you know? When was the last time that you, you, Eric? You always say that. Like you always complain about. No, the this product. is pretty bad. This is pretty bad. <laughs> like Murph's disgusted by it. He's maybe it, it, it is, but maybe WWE will be better by the summer when Bar- Parker Boudreaux is Hey. <laughs> hey. And I know, Murph, you'll be keeping abreast of that. Oh, Elo's on that beat. That's not my oh, yeah. beat. That's, <laughs> that is my beat. Got, I did yeah. write about that. You can check that out. Yeah, you got about fi- you got about 1,500 words queued up for the official announcement if that ever happens, right, Eric? <laughs> Down, Pat, ready to go, get quotes. Heck, maybe I'll get reach out to Todd and Greg and get quotes from them and, and their, how they think he'll are fit. We gonna, are we going to have some, some, potential, uh, some potential angles with people? Are we going to have some potential uh, gimmicks? Oh, God. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully something. Hopefully something better than what we're currently seeing in the current product. That's all I, I hope for his here sake. We are, here we are already planning his post-UCF career. Sorry, Par- sorry, uh, Parker. You know, it's, it's, we, we kid because we care. Anyway, uh, that'll do it for us here on Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Uh, make sure you follow us at UCF underscore Banneret, Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banneret, and, of course, BlackandGoldBanneret.com. We are SB Nation's home for your UCF nights. Thanks, as always, to everyone on our staff. Make sure you pay attention to our Twitter feed especially and, of course, the site every morning for Jeremy Renner's newsletter. 
as well. For all of us here at Black and Gold Bannerette, I'm Jeff Jaren saying thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you again later this week with our UCF Volleyball Preview Show. See you then.